As I've been doing workshops with parents, one of the recurring questions that comes up is what to do with the idea of so-called Old Testament God. You might be familiar with this caricature. In fact, when we were together live as a group, I asked if people would chat in what they know about Old Testament God and things like angry, wrathful, arbitrary, petty, righteous came up. We continued and flipped and said, what do you know about New Testament God? And we had words like grace, mercy, love, kindness. But when it comes to this idea of Old Testament God, I think it's important to ask, is that what God's like though? I know that there are communities that would say it is and that the task of someone practicing trusting God is simply to work on dealing with it. But I think that a much more helpful question when we are trying to explore the character of God is to be able to ask, is that really what God's like? Exodus 34, where we are in our story today as we are at the second to last week of Exodus, offers us a glimmer of what God says about God's own self. We've just come off the story of the golden calf, where the people have turned to an idol and claimed that it had some role in bringing them out of Egypt. And God is angry. Stereotypical Old Testament God seems to be on display. And this brings us to the first helpful strategy when we're trying to wonder, is it really what God's like? And it's this, to be sure we read the whole story. To simply be sure we read the whole story because the anger we see at the end of the Golden Calf episode is not truly the end of the Golden Calf story. It continues on when Moses goes on behalf of the people to God to talk about their future. Will God give up on them? Are they on their own now? And God responds to Moses' request to remain with them and Moses' request and desire to experience God's glory by coming near and showing their glory. And then God describes himself for the very first time in the Old Testament saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Hey, these are the words people talk to you about the New Testament God with. But they are the first ways God ever describes himself. It is not just that Jesus provides a lens through which we see God of the Old Testament, knowing that Jesus is what God is like. It is also that the Old Testament describes a God who is full of love and compassion and mercy, such that we are able to see Jesus and the rest of the New Testament as well. These words that God offers for themselves are incredibly rich. And so briefly, I just want to call out some of what the Hebrew offers us when it comes to adding layers of depth. God describes himself as merciful, a word that is drawing on what comes from the womb. It is mother love that inspires mercy. Gracious, which includes the fact that it is unmerited favor that one experiences from Yahweh God, something undeserved simply because God just chooses. Slow to anger. And this one's really fun. The literal Hebrew expression is long-nosed. That is, it's like the breath we take when we know that we have become heated in order to calm down again. (sighs) That whatever anger might rise up in God, God also has a cooling off mechanism through their long nose. God says they're full of steadfast love. The word is chesed. It means God keeps the covenant. That it isn't just a fondness God feels for us, but an action God takes in keeping their promises. And it's coupled with the word faithfulness, emet, 
These two get linked together a lot, Hesed and Emet. They're synonyms, really, but by putting them together, there's an extra layer of emphasis, showing God being totally reliable. And then God says they forgive. And the Bible has a lot of ways to describe what it is God does when God forgives. And this first one that God picks is to lift, to carry, to bear the burden. The weight that would be on people for their own choices gets lifted off and carried by God instead. One reason we might need to revisit the character of God as it's represented in the Old Testament, I think, has to do with the way English translations have to make decisions, including what to do with the way this passage goes on. So when we get to Exodus 34, 7, if you were to read, for instance, the New American Standard Bible, NASB, you'd read this. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Oh, there's Old Testament God again. But look at how the New Living Translation, NLT, connects that image of forgiveness as bearing weight or carrying in the way they represent the same verse. But I do not excuse the guilty, says God. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. They have that carrying the weight of one's own choices kind of phrase. It echoes what we see in Jeremiah, for instance, where lives are described as having gone down a path and that there might be a choice between two paths. But once a person makes it, the path leads where it leads. Similarly, without God's intervention, the weight of one's choices rests upon them and they have to deal with whatever comes. It's simply a different understanding of God as far as the actor. One where God is not standing there administering punishment after all. We also cannot miss the numbers that are here in this representation of God's character. That whatever it is that happens when sin sticks around, it carries into the third and fourth generation. But God's commitment and love carry on to the thousandth. Now, one thing I find helpful when I consider these two more severe aspects of God's character that are included has to do with how I feel when I try to read the news. I'm sure you know, too, how much it's hard to get past a headline into an article because it can be not only overwhelming, but lead to even a place of despair. And that's kind of where I find myself often right now. As people continue to migrate to the U.S. in hopes of greater safety and stability, as the earthquake in Morocco and the flood in Libya cause such tremendous grief, as the judicial and prison systems in the U.S. continue to be so incredibly inequitable, I find that I am just incredibly sad. But along with the sadness comes another emotion. It makes me mad. I mean, there are people who could help, and so many of them don't. And when they say why, to my mind, that doesn't seem like a good enough reason. And that's when I realize that I don't want a stoic, observant, benignly loving God. I want a God who cares about this stuff. And I hope God cares not just because God loves the people impacted by these things, but also because the evil parts of it stir something up in God. I want a God who gets mad. So long as I can trust that God gets mad about the right kinds of things and that God doesn't stay mad forever. And so we get to the end of God's description of themselves and we have seven positive attributes and two severe ones that seem to be almost a contradiction. They're certainly a tension and our inclination might be to skip over those last two or downplay it. 
But if part of how we get to know God's character in the Old Testament is to read the whole story, another way we do that is by asking. If something seems hard or even bad to me, why might it have been good for them? And with that question, we might see a few things about how the Old Testament engages God's character. One is that Israel is a collectivist culture. They don't have a sensibility that God owes an individual faithfulness in their personal circumstances in order to be good. God's goodness is in God's faithfulness and not giving up on the community as a whole over a long period of time. It's simply a difference in what a culture would value. We would also see how all of these attributes God has given are relational ones. They're not individual characteristics that stand alone. They're characteristics that become true as God relates to Israel. And the choice of God to define themselves in relationship to God's people would be tremendously encouraging. Third, we would find that the Old Testament writers pick and choose where they emphasize based on the situation or their purposes. They sometimes lean into the more positive attributes of God. And then they sometimes choose the more severe ones because they, like me with the headlines, want to know that God sees things and cares and might even get a little bit mad in the right sort of way. Fourth, they grapple with these various aspects of God's character by practicing being clear-eyed about sin, such that they would understand that a God who bears our sin is bearing a lot. They don't tend to be a people of cheap grace, expecting God to just forgive because we can and we'll all just get along from there. God bears and God forgives, and it's a lot to bear. As God describes themselves with these strong, positive, and two challenging terms, Moses sort of approaches God in the conversation and says, Hey God, why don't you pick your good side? Pick the nice one. Moses' logic is, Hey, I have been faithful to you, Yahweh God, so I'm going to be bold. Also, we are going to be unfaithful, so we're really going to need you. And that takes us to Exodus 34, verse 8, where Moses hurried to bow low to the ground and worship and then said, If I in any way have found favor in your sight, Lord, please may my Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our wrongdoing and our sin and take us as your own possession. Now here's where the New Living Translation might not bring something forward that would be actually very helpful for us to see, which is when Moses said, may the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, even though doesn't quite capture. In fact, it could be because. Come along with us because we're obstinate. We need you near because we're going to mess this up. You have to come or we are doomed because we will not be better without you. And then finally, We see that the Old Testament writers might find that all of this dynamic character of God is a good thing because it reminds them God's holy. Holiness, you may know, it's about being distinct and set apart and different. In other words, it's a good thing for God to not be ours to control or too reflective of us as if God were made in our image, especially because it is the character of God that really keeps this whole partnering with people for the sake of the world thing, going. People are going to fail on their side, but God has this ability to one-sidedly keep promises and keep things moving and make the whole thing go. And that brings us to the last thing God says. Behold, I'm going to make a covenant. 
he says in 3410. Before all your people, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in the earth nor among any of the nations. And all the people among you whom you live will see the working of the Lord. For it is a fearful thing I am going to perform with you. Israel's life as a community was initiated in wonders while they were enslaved in Egypt. And their life in the wilderness will be renewed by wonders now. It is God's relentless commitment to the covenant that saves them after the golden calf incident. It is the faithfulness of God that accomplishes what faithless Israel never can. And for all God might feel or for all God might say as God responds to this golden calf incident, this is what God actually does. This is the choice God actually makes. And so we're coming close to the end of Exodus. And I simply want to invite you to think about what have you discovered or been reminded of about who God is because of the Exodus story? What do we come to know about who God is because of the Old Testament? And might those be some very good things?